summer. And let's let's get going. For those of you uh, that, that haven't been here before, haven't been here for a while, we're going through church history. And I know that, that there are a couple people, including Randy, that were all excited for this, and I don't think he can be here today. So he was like, no, I was so looking forward to church history. But technically, the name of this class is church history for those people who didn't think they liked history. So the idea behind this is not that we're just trying to learn a whole bunch of names and dates, though. There's really good names and dates. They deserve to be remembered. But, uh, but rather to look at this and, and, again, see the flow of things and how we've gotten to where we are right now in, in the church. We've gone through a chunk. Now, it, it looks like we're maybe only two-thirds of the way through. I, I really do think if we average about eight to ten years of a session, we're fine. We're, we're cool. We can finish this up. So that, that's good. But right now, we're, we're finishing up that age of enlightenment. And... Uh, before we get into the age of revolutions, where everything gets everything gets tossed up in the air, everything gets changed, sociopolitically and in the church. Before we get there, we're still trying to look a little bit at the at the seeds of revolution. What what is it that, that created the environment, created the the platform for all the wackiness that goes on in the mid 18th century and 19th century that changes not only the political climate of the world but the way the church looks, the way the church even looks at the Bible. So we got to back up and, and, and still be part of this, this age of enlightenment where we're starting to try to think about things a little bit differently. Now, where we left off last time, we were talking about how the way people think is starting to change, the way we start to evaluate things, and, and what the church is doing around the world is starting to change. If you remember, last thing we talked about, Salem witch trials, right? Wacky fun that. So 1692, we've had a lot of fun with the Salem Witch Trials. How many people were burned at the stake? Anybody remember at the Salem Witch Trials? None. None people. Nobody was burned at the stake in the Salem Witch Trials. There were some people who were hanged. There was one guy that they piled rocks on until he got smushed. But nobody was burnt. They didn't do burning at the stake, that sort of thing. But there were, gosh, I think there was something like like 70 people who had gotten arrested and things, and, and, and something in the, in the 20s, I think, of people who were actually hanged or, or, or killed in other ways. But, more than anything else, this wasn't really a religious thing as much as it was an opportunity for people to kind of pick on their neighbors that they didn't really like. Everything that we normally think of as from the term witch hunt that we get from this era, that's the way to look at this. Now, some of the, uh, of the people, like Cotton Mather, who kind of gave a theological underpinning to this, yes, to them they were saying, oh, there's a lot of witches in the world, and there's a lot of darkness, and there's a lot of people who are seeking out alternative ways to find spirituality than God. Because there were. Folk magic was kind of a big thing. I mean, there was a lot of that going on. But the trials themselves were not about theology. The trials themselves were not about Christianity. It wasn't even about purifying the church as much as it was about giving into hysteria and giving into the political forces that brought that about. Can you, can you picture, and I know this is hard, can you try to picture a situation where the church is making theological, doctrinal decisions based not so much on scripture, but on their political stances on things? Can you, can you try to stretch yourself and imagine the world where that... And I say that not only to be a snotty, but to say... Everything that we're talking about in history, this is the stuff we do now. This is still normal human beings with the same normal human motivations that we have now. They may not have electricity in their homes, but it's the same kind of people. There's, they're, they're, they're nothing fundamentally different. It's still making decisions based on, arguably, the wrong motivators, just like we all did. Well, that same year that the Salem Witch Trials are going on, something called the Chinese Rites Controversy began. Now, anybody remember, how's Christianity doing in China these days here? It's not. It's not doing in China. It, there was a time, and we talked about this before, there was a time where Christianity was rocking in China. It was doing great. It had the authority of the emperor. Everything was awesome. They had tons of churches. Yay! Thousands of converts. And then suddenly, not so much. They got on the wrong side of the emperors, and the emperors clapped down on it, burned all the temples, killed all the people. Christianity was destroyed in China. They're trying really hard to destroy Christianity in Japan at this time. 
But thankfully, the Jesuits are in Japan trying very hard to be pleasant and work well with, with the shogun in, in, in Japan. It never completely died out in Japan. There are always these little pockets of what they call the kirishitan, the, the, the hiding Christians in Japan. No matter what they did, they just didn't seem to be able to dislodge them from the islands. And now that the Jesuits are there, they're actually starting to work with the church and things. Well, in China, we got an emperor named Kangxi. And when he was younger, and I love this, by the way, that apparently, like 30 years ago, he was wearing the exact same outfit when they painted him. <laughs> Actually, we see multiple paintings of this guy wearing the same outfit at multiple times in his life. Why? Just keep changing heads. Huh? <laughs> well, because he Actually, you can see it's a different painting. It's a different artist and things. But, but it's it's that that's like the royal outfit. I mean, it's, he doesn't change his clothes every day. Like, every day it's a new outfit. Oh no! In Europe, they weren't even changing clothes every month. In Europe, they changed clothes at this time, thanks to the to the Reformation or to the uh, to the Renaissance and their understanding of germ theory. They changed clothes every spring. Okay, they wear the same clothes all year long, and then crack it off in the spring, take a bath as little much of a bath as they possibly can, put on a new set of clothes, and wear that for a year. Renaissance and post Renaissance Europe, not a nice place to be. Okay. Uh, Japan, China, yeah, they bathe like every day. Europe, not so much, because they, they figured out that's, that's how you're going to get sick, is by getting wet, right? Anyway, so when he was younger, Kenshi welcomed Europeans in. He loved Europeans, because they, they brought a freshness. They brought a different perspective on the things. And they had a, a completely different take on... A freshness, <laughs> Pun not intended. A brightness, as it were. Um, but they helped modernize this technology specifically to help them put down um, a, a rebellion from the last little remnants of the Ming Dynasty. Getting rid of those guys little by little by little. But he appreciated the Jesuits most of all because for lots of different reasons. Number one, they were educated in science. They were good in astronomy. They were good in philosophy. They were good in politics. They, were, they knew military techniques. They helped modernize his firearms so that he could actually take out rebels in Taiwan. He liked them. But not only that, they knew how to deal with Asians. Other than some of the other Europeans that came along and said, oh, we're going to be extremely Dutch at you. You know, we're just, we're just the way we're going to be. The Jesuits are like, let's, let's actually educate ourselves on how the Asians do things and connect with them on their level. How about, how about we do that? Go figure. Maybe do a little bit of background on this. So, unlike some of the other religious orders of the time, they tried to blend in. They tried to syncretize as much as they possibly could. They learned the language. They learned the languages really, really well. They became fluent in Japanese, Chinese, that sort of thing. They became interpreters for everybody. So that no matter where you went and you had any kind of official court, you had to make sure you had a Jesuit there so he could interpret. Dumb like a fox. You just go, yeah, you make yourself indispensable. That's how you be a missionary. So that the people there actually want you there. Jesuits knew what they were doing. They also followed all the social customs. They ate the, the same food. They lived in the same kinds of houses. They went to the same sort of festivals. They learned how to be Chinese amongst the Chinese. So that people didn't just look at them and say, oh, you're a European bringing your European religion in. They're like, everything that we can do, we're trying to connect with you where you're at. They even adopted Asian clothing. Whether that's dressing in orange because that's what the Buddhist priests dressed in. You didn't have any orders in Europe dressing in orange. You always dressed in brown or gray or black. But in Asia, you got a front I thought they weren't allowed to. Eventually. Okay. Sorry. But, but the Jesuits, being Jesuits, went, wait a minute. They were already used to holy men dressing in orange. Why don't we just dress in orange? So when people see us, we go, hi, I'm a Jesuit, I'm a holy man. They go, well, of course you are, you're dressing in orange. They had this immediate association with us that we liked the people you already respect dressing in orange. So it makes total sense, doesn't it? Glom onto the social tradition. So either dress like the monks or dress in the silk robes of the upper classes. Dress like the scholars, dress like the royals. So that when you walk into, the, into a court situation, they go, oh, you're like a noble. You're like a scholar. 
instant respect, because we're either dressed like holy men or like people that you already respect in the court. That's the way the Jesuits thought. As a result, well, I'll just back up a little bit. There's one Jesuit named Matteo Ricci who helped start the, the, uh, the, the ministry to China, and he really argued, be all things to all men, just like in Scripture. You know, let's try to connect with them at their culture. The uh, Pope, Pope Alexander VII, issued orders that unlike anywhere else in the world, how about we use Chinese in the Mass? Anywhere else you go, you have to make them do Latin. But the Jesuits said, that's not going to fly in China. It didn't fly hardly anywhere else, but it's totally not going to fly in China. They've already got their own system. It's not like going to Native Americans and saying, you've got to learn Latin, which is hard, but we've got guns and they don't. It's not like going to, to Germany where we say, ah, German's great, but you've got to learn Latin. Because by now they're kind of used to us doing that. This is a whole culture that has its own system, and they've got a lot more armies and things than we do. We can't force them. Let's meet them where they're at. And so the Pope said, okay. In fact, the Pope even said, missionaries should, quote, not put forward any arguments to convince these peoples to change their rights, their customs, or their usages, except if they're evidently contrary to religion and morality. What would be more absurd than to try to bring France, Spain, Italy, or any other European country to the Chinese? Don't bring them our countries. Instead, bring them the faith. I like this guy. This is actually a decent pope. This guy is actually solid. So you go, yeah, don't try to make them England, as England keeps trying to do. Bring Christianity to the Chinese. Not Europe to the Chinese. Christianity to the Chinese. So, by 1692, it's become so popular in the Chinese court that the Jesuit named Tomas Pereira, um, who's uh, actually Portuguese, so I'm, not, I'm never good at pronouncing Portuguese. But he's a scientist, a mathematician, and, and he uses that to be a tent maker in the court. He makes himself indispensable to the emperor. In 1692, Tomas specifically, officially petitions Kangxi for sanction by the royal court. Could you, rather than just be nice to us, can you, could you issue an order saying that we were an acceptable religion in China? Give us official sanction. Kang Shi not only sanctions the church, but issues an edict of tolerance that puts Christianity on the same level as Buddhism and Taoism. Says we're going to build temples. We're going to uh, give them tax money to build their own temples and things. He orders the building all this stuff to the Catholic King of Heaven, as he, as he calls him. Sets severe punishments on anybody who's going to oppose the missionaries and their efforts. Says, how can I fund this? Do you need travel permits? Do you need travel monies? Let's get this religion going. I want this to be on the same level as Taoism and Buddhism. That's kind of a booyah thing. You just go, wait a minute. Yeah, just like our government does. Just like our government does, yeah. China! Like, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, there's some struggling missionaries in China trying to get by, trying to make some converts. Usually they're Dominicans. The, the Jesuits come along, connect with Gangxi, and after 40 years, now it's become an official religion in China. People are coming to know the Lord by the thousands in China. For the first time in centuries, there's a church, and it's growing leaps and bounds. Praise God? Praise God. Yeah, so the Dominicans are torqued off. Because they've been doing this for like 150 years, and these Jesuits come along, and in a couple of decades, suddenly, they're all buddy-buddy with the emperor. Kind of hate them, Right? It's not like Christians ever shoot ourselves in the foot because we don't like other Christians, right? We would never do that, would we? No, you're a liberal, therefore I hate you. No, no, we don't do that. We say, praise God that you're doing well. Okay, remember, the Dominicans and the Jesuits really don't like each other. They have never liked each other. They're both very missions-minded. They're both very education-minded. They're both extremely extreme in what they're doing. They're very, very similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're very, very similar. From history or your own personal experience, what's your personal experience about people who are not exactly the same, but very, very similar? They identify, but because they identify, if, if you were totally different, I'd go, ah, you're so strange, okay? But if you're a lot like me, but not exactly like me, then you're doing it wrong. I, I kind of hate you. I identify with you, but that's what makes me hate you, because 
you're doing it wrong. So they're both saying, hey, why don't we why don't we learn a lot of stuff and then take that learning? That's what the Augustinians did. But like the Franciscans going and helping people, why don't we be like Augustinians learning stuff and then like Franciscans and going and help people? The Dominicans and the Jesuits are like, yeah, let's do that. But they did it very, very differently, so they didn't like each other. For a century, a century and a half, the Dominicans have been trying desperately to reach out and had not had much luck, in part because, being Dominicans, they didn't budge a bit. They're like, we are not going to accommodate these weirdo alien people in Asia. It's amazing when you read some of the, some of the stuff, even some of these Dominican missionaries that had spent their whole lives in Asia, by our standards today, our politically correct standards today, some of the stuff that they wrote is just flat out racist. I mean, there was one Dominican I was reading from this time period that talked about, we've spent a century trying to reach these monkeys, and you guys, and you just go, well, maybe that's your problem. Maybe they don't appreciate that you don't see them as human. Maybe. Maybe that's part of it. They dressed like Europeans. They ate like Europeans. They built European houses. They spoke Latin and demanded that everybody speak Latin. You learn how to be us, because us is good and you is not. You learn how to be us. Strangely, do that for a century. Don't get a lot of feedback. To see the Jesuits actually doing good really bugged them, especially since they did actually say, wait a minute, you're more than just accommodating their, their society. You're actually like participating in their Confucianism. You're participating in some of the Taoist rituals. You're praying in some of their, uh, other, other Buddhist temples. You are taking part in some of their ancestor worship. This isn't right. You're bending and capitulating to culture. So, the Chinese, like the Jesuits, didn't like the Dominicans. The Jesuits said, no, 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 no. They don't worship their ancestors. They revere their ancestors. It's, it's different. It's not a religious thing. Yes, we go and we pray at their temples, but we pray to Jesus at their temples. And we tell them that that's what we're doing, and they say, oh, that's fine. This is just a place of prayer. And we're praying at a place of prayer. Um, when they have these holy days where they go do stuff in the streets, it's more like a holiday than a holy day. It's not a religious thing to them. It's a social thing. And so we're doing the social stuff. The Dominicans are like, no, it's all part and parcel of their Chinese religion. You are still venerating or revering or worshiping their ancestors. You're still praying. You may say that you're praying in a holy place, but you're praying to Jesus. And they say, right, it's all the same thing. And you say, right. Yes, they're coming to Christianity, but are they really coming to Christianity? Or are they really just tacking some Christian verbiage onto what they're already doing? Which group is right? say they're both doing right. Either one is doing right. They're both wanting to preserve Christianity. Yep. And they're both wanting to bring Christianity to China. The Dominicans are right that truth is truth. And once you start playing footsie with that, you have to continue playing footsie and it gets easier and easier and worse and worse. What are they wrong about? What's, what are the Jesuits right about? So are you accommodating to their culture, but bringing a completely separate truth? Or are you accommodating truth so that their culture can hear it? Even the Protestant ministers, uh, missionaries in the early days expected them to change their culture. Oh, yeah. And uh, it isn't the culture it's supposed to have. No, I mean, it's, it was the, 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 classic, the classic joke in like the 19th century was, you know, go reach the Africans and save Africa from the Africans and put some clothes on, please. As Jesus intended. You go, right, because, wait, what? You know, where, where is it in Scripture that you have to dress with a suit and tie to go to church? It seems like one of the good examples of if truth offends, okay, then we're offending. Yeah. And well, and even today, um, there are churches that, that if you don't dress up to go to a church service, you're looked down upon. And others that say, why, that's ridiculous. We're going to structure our whole service to reach people who don't like churches. And so we would never do anything that, it's, that would make somebody in our culture uncomfortable. And you go, well, technically both of you are starting to make this whole thing all about 
the culture. Oh, and by the way, we're going to share some truth. It's like, wait, is truth the core of it, or are you making stylistics the core of it? Either because you want to make the culture your culture, or because you are so accommodating to culture that you might start rounding the edges off of your truth. It gets a little complicated, but again, they've been dealing with this, dealing with this for 2,000 years. But it's in today's class that we've been dealing with this for 300 years. Ah, 1704, the Dominicans had convinced new pope, Clement the 11th, to censure the Jesuits. What? Yeah, there you go. Popes always are doing this stuff. They're doing the three fingers. It's, it's always the thumb. Got to get the thumb up there. Because it looks like two fingers. It's three fingers because you include the thumb. Churchill and something. Pardon me? Churchill and... No, that's... that's yeah, the two fingers is victory. That's Churchill. This, this three finger thing, this is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity. This is... I get to do this. Yeah, victory on the Pope. There you go. Now, by papal order, Chinese traditions are declared idolatrous and barbaric. Considered blasphemous to allow the Catholics, new Catholic converts in China, to call God heaven or high one. Because they'll talk about, you know, we, we want to pray to heaven. Which even some Europeans have, have used that phraseology. But that's the way the Chinese refer to it. You know, you need to lift your, your prayers to heaven. And they're like, no, no, no. To the God of heaven. You need to make it extremely clear. The Jesuits have been calling him Lord of heaven for 150, or Jesuits, I'm sorry. Dominicans have been calling him Lord of heaven in China for the last 150 years. That's what you want to do. He has to be called Lord of Heaven. Anything else is blasphemous. Lots of chairs up here. Lots of chairs up here. There you go. So, no Catholic, no Catholic, including recent converts, are allowed to take part in the veneration of Confucius or their ancestors or in any festivals or traditions where anybody does those things. So if somebody becomes a Christian, they have to be cut off from every part of their culture that does this. This is infused in every part of their culture. No Catholic is allowed to worship in China's traditional family temples. Which makes sense. You can totally understand where you go, you're a Catholic. You shouldn't be worshiping at a, at a pagan temple. Except, this is an important part of being part of a family in China. Is, you, every family has their own temple. You build it, even if you have to skip lunches and things like that to do it. Everybody's got their own shrines. You can't even step foot in one of those anymore. So you're cutting yourself off from the rest of your family and all of that. All of this is flat out ignoring what Alexander had said, right? But that's okay, because this makes so much more sense. For decades, the Jesuits were like, please, please don't do this. You're hampering our efforts. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and you can't wear orange. That's bad. It's pagan. The color? A whole color pagan? No, it helps us reach the... No, no, no. No, no, no. It's, you're being divisive. 1742. Yes. More, more hand gestures. Pope Benedict XIV issues another papal bull forcing all missionaries in Asia to take an oath promising to never bring any of this up again. If you're going to be a missionary, you have to agree that whatever the Pope says goes, you don't even get to talk about it. No more of this accommodated culture. They speak Latin, they become European, that's what it means to be a Christian. Deal. No, but... Emperor Kangxi, as you might imagine, didn't appreciate this. He's like, oh, we're barbaric? We're barbaric because of what we do. Fine. There's a ban on all Christian missions, all Christian churches. Burn them all. Get rid of everything. There's no way. It is now illegal to be Christian in China. I've concluded that the Westerners are petty indeed. It's impossible to reason with them because they do not understand the larger issues as we understand them in China. From now on, Westerners should not be allowed to preach in China just to avoid further trouble. That's it. It's done. Christianity is again officially dead in China. All in the span of one emperor is leaving. Wacky fun that. Can you imagine a church that shoots missions in the foot so actively and so politically? Can you, can you try to picture it? The next year, book called The Practice of the Presence of God is published. Has anybody ever heard of this book? A guy named Brother Lawrence? Brother Lawrence. Actually, Brother Lawrence, uh, you can call him by his French name or by his German name because he grew up in that region that we've talked about on, on the edge of French territory and German territory where you call it the Lorraine or Lotharingia, this idea of, of 
It's French, no, it's German. It's French, no, it's German. It's French, no, it's German. Every war, it flip-flops as to where it is, um, depending on your perspective. But he was born, Nicolas Hermann, because I think he was from, it looks like he was more German. Anyway, that's not. Nicholas Hermann, and went to the army because the family was stinking poor. And if you're stinking poor and you can't afford to feed your kids, you really only have two choices, well, three choices. Three, one is you watch them starve. Second is that you send them to the army, or if they're really smart, you can make them maybe send them to a monastery. Either way, they're, they're going to get three squares a day and, and keep off the streets, right? So he goes in the army, and he was looking at a tree one winter, and was suddenly struck by the, by the grace of God. He felt very empty, very dead inside. And he was looking at this tree, and he's like, you know, this tree looks horribly dead. When I look at it, I just see lack of fruit. I see death. But when the spring comes, it'll be alive. God, God promises this. I mean, he doesn't verbally promise it, but every spring, all the trees that we look at and we go, oh, that looks dead, and they come alive again. So even though I feel spiritually dead, if God cares this much about a tree, if I can't judge by what the tree looks like today, then I shouldn't judge by what I feel like today. Not a super brilliant guy, not a scholar. He's just a guy who looked at a tree and went, huh. So he musters out of the army, and he joined a group of monks called the Carmelites, the, the, the order of Mount Carmel, in part because they specialized in, in focusing themselves on simple things, on ministry, on service, on prayer, so simple that they, they refused to wear shoes or sandals which technically makes this painting a little inaccurate, because what would the fact he got shoes? Anyway, but he names himself Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. The idea of saying, I, I always want to remember that, well, two things. First, he names himself after a saint who, back in the 300s, was martyred when, when the, the Romans demanded that he turn over the treasures of the church, and he brought them the sick and the poor. So these, these are the treasures of the church. So they killed him rather nastily. So he's like, that, that guy, that's who I want to be like. And number two, I want to be Brother Lawrence of the resurrection. I want to remind myself that Christ was resurrected, that he promised to resurrect the dead, and there was a point where I was dead, and I'd been resurrected. So anytime anybody says my name, I want to consciously remember, that's right, no matter how I feel today, spring is coming. No matter how, what I'm going through now, I know what God can do with me. I like this guy. Quietly becomes famous by being just simple, joyful. Is he brilliant? Not necessarily. Is he a great scholar? No. What is he? Simple, joyful. So this book technically wasn't published by Brother Lawrence. It was just his thoughts compiled over 51 years of being a monk. Guys at like the age of 77. Still doing well. But it was never intended to be published. It was only published by a friend of his who said, people got to hear what you're thinking here about this. It's a different way of looking at things. He wasn't a scholar, like I said. Not at all. So this is an even less accurate depiction of him. And yet this is the kind of depiction you see all the time. Brother Lawrence, labeling, laboring over the book he's publishing, and you go, he didn't even write the stuff down. Other people are writing it down. He was not a scholar. He wasn't one of these monks that sits behind a desk all the time. Anybody know where Brother Lawrence worked? In the kitchen. That's right. He just lived a quiet life in the kitchen, which is why in the cover of the book, this cover of this edition of the book, he's stirring a pot. That's what he did. He worked in the kitchen, not because he enjoyed it, but specifically because he didn't like it. He didn't enjoy cooking. So he made sure that he was the guy who cooked every day. Why? Because he wanted to know. <laughs> 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 he was really horrible cook, and everybody else was like, <laughs> if, he, if he were a Celtic monk, or, or maybe a Benedictine, they loved, like, literally beating themselves. They loved throwing themselves into briar bushes and going, look, I'm in pain for Jesus. So if he were, if he were a Celtic monk or a Benedictine, this might be his way of self-flagellating. 
this is bad, and I'm a bad person, I need to mortify my flesh, and I need to work in the kitchen. That's not at all the rationale. Could it be that I'm not, I'm not dependent upon what I'm doing. It's my relationship with God that counts. That's exactly what it is. It's like, to, to Brother Lawrence, finding joy is the joy. Not just doing things that you enjoy, but saying it's not dependent on what I'm doing. And so it's actually easier for me to, to actively look for God in a situation that I don't naturally enjoy. Because if I were doing stuff I naturally enjoyed, I'd focus on the situation. But if I'm doing things I naturally don't, now I focus on God. And so to him, he's like, oh, I hate this, which is why it's a joy. I hate this, but because I get to be with my Lord, that's what makes it good. He said, we don't all have to be in, in, in church to be with God. We can make our own hearts an oratory where we, where we can withdraw from time to time to converse with Him, gently, humbly, loving Him, to converse with God, to be in relationship with God. Everyone is capable of these familiar conversations with God. Now, what I love is, his friend, brother, Father Joseph goes, oh man, I, please let me write that down. You do realize that goes flat out against what the Catholic Church is teaching at this time where they say, you do not pray outside of a church. You can't pray. The priest prays. It has to be eloquent. You have to write it down. You have to quote something. You Maybe read other people's written prayers. For a good Catholic to come up and go, we're just talk with Just talk with him. God loves you. He wants to talk with you. Flat out against what's going on. And yet, with not a rebellious bone in his body. He's not trying to start a new movement. He's just going, I like God. Can we just, can we just like God? I think it's kind of cool. Amazingly, is this still something we struggle with? I mean, not even just Catholics today. Christians of all sorts, evangelicals. Don't we sometimes sit there and go, I couldn't converse with God. I mean, prayers have to be eloquent. They have to, they have to be elevating. They have to be just like, you're talking to God. That is elevating. You want to be eloquent while you do it? Knock yourself out. Your eloquence is not the thing that elevates the prayer. And usually the attempt to make it eloquent is what prevents it from being elevated. Because now you're writing a poem instead of talking to your Lord. Can that be beautiful? Can that be eloquent? And can that in and of itself be a way of expressing your worship? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if the focus on writing or expressing your prayer is, i got to make it look eloquent, I've got to do it this way, you've missed the point of what prayer is all about. To Lawrence, the point of being with God isn't a matter of eloquent prayers, holy places. It's making your whole life a prayer. And saying every place you go, that's a special holy place. Because you're taking God with you. And if you take God with you into that place, it's a holy place. And should feel like that. So I don't care. Are you in a church? Awesome. You in a cathedral? Great. You in the woods? Awesome. Are you in a, a smelly kitchen? Great. That's a holy place. Why? Well, because God's there. He says, I flip my little omelet in the frying pan for the love of God. Because I don't like doing it. I do it for Jesus. And when it's done, if I have nothing else to do, I prostrate myself on the floor and adore my God who gave me the grace to do it. After which I get up happier than a king. Our sanctification depends not on changing what we do, per se, but on doing for God what we would normally do for ourselves. You've heard me talk about this so many different ways, but stopping at a stop sign for the glory of God. Pushing a broom and saying, I'm doing this with the right heart. Um... Interacting with a brother or sister and saying, I would, I would ordinarily do this, but you know what? I want to make sure that this interaction is glorifying to God. I have an argument. I even want to make sure that that argument is glorifying to God and how I do it, which I need to work on much later. But the idea of saying, wait, stop. I don't want to just do this nicely because it's the right thing to do or it's a nice thing or I don't want to ruin my marriage. No. I want to do this appropriately as an act of worship to God. Can that be an act of worship? Can singing a beautiful Easter cantata be an act of worship? Can flipping an omelet be just as profound an act of worship? Absolutely. So it's sad that he's like, so many people make this so hard. 
why you got to make this so hard? He's like, men invent means and, and methods of coming at God's love. They, they learn all these rules. They set up all these devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. They come up with all sorts of artificiality to try to help them with this. And strangely, it just seems to not help. It seems to make it more complicated. No, no, you got to do it this way. Then you feel God's presence. Really? Do you feel God's presence? Well, no. Then you're doing it wrong. He's like, just, it might be so simple. Isn't it just quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? Wouldn't it just be easier instead of, instead of coming up with all these hoops to jump through so that you can be in the presence of God? Why don't you just be in the presence of God? Like, like all the time. Is that, is that really that complicated? Think of it this way. What really, what really makes the measure of a healthy marriage? And if you go, well, I'm not married. Okay. Stretch your imagination. Is it making sure that you have these carefully orchestrated, regularly scheduled date nights every month where you do special things and you got to do them in the right ways? And if you totally forgot one part of oh, I didn't bring flowers. Oh, this whole night is ruined. Oh, man. Is it that? Or is it the daily living with one another, demonstrating thoughtfully and consistently how much you genuinely care? Which, which is more important? I mean, yeah, that's a leading question, but it's it's, <laughs> but it's worth answering because we're like, yeah, yeah. So how do you live that out in your marriage? No, yeah, that's good. Do you live that out in your marriage? Do you live that out in your friendships? Do you live that out in your relationships with your children? It's not just the, well, we went to Yosemite. That was fancy. I'll see you again in another 50 weeks. i got to go to work now. No. It's not just we went on fancy vacations. It's, it's sitting there snuggling. It's sitting there talking about life. It's, it's cooking together. It's, it's all the different times where you show on a daily basis, I'm more interested in interacting with you than I am in getting what I feel like I need. And if you look at yourself and go, yeah, why don't you do that for me? You're missing it. I need to do that. Conversely, how do you live that out with your love for God? Do you say in your love for God each day, I'm more interested in spending time with you than I am in you giving me what I feel like I need? How would you do that? How would you do that on a daily basis with God? Just the weird. Okay. That's how very Brother Lawrence of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just doing that. Just saying, I want to spend time with you. How, nutty bolty. How would you go about doing something? Yeah. God and I have goofy little chats all the time. I mean, just as, as I'm driving... As a, if I see something I think is interesting, I'll, I'll make a comment, and I'm sure that if there are people around me that think I'm, they already think I'm not. But, um, but it's just like, yeah, I mean, God's forever pointing stuff out, and I'm forever going, oh, that is, you rocked with that, by the way. You know, that, it's, it seems ridiculous, but why not treat him as if he were there with you, enjoying life? Because, because he is. I don't always see Wendy, sometimes she's standing behind me or she's in another room, but I will... I will be making comments because I know she's actually there, right? I don't actually see God, but I know he's with me, so I make comments as though he's actually there. If I'm not crazy to talk to Wendy that way, I'm not crazy to talk to God that way. Make an effort to, to converse with him. What else can you do? then you can understand why to Lawrence it's actually a luxury to be stuck in the kitchen. You're sitting there going, am I doing this? I'm running around here. I have to complete this scroll. I need to... I'm flipping eggs. <laughs> I'm picking bread. Ah, bread in the oven! Well, since we got some time. I mean, but just to be able to have that, that sense... Oh, yeah, right. 
some people, depending on the personality, a disciplined mother mm -hmm. is more needed. Where others find it, they don't. They go with the flow easy. Mm -hmm. Just like some people are uh, can roll with things, others have to have a list and go through it. So what works for you is the better. Absolutely. Um, for, for some people, it's just a matter of going, let me just interact with God. Let's just, let's just do it. Other people, it's, it's a matter of point. I need to start each day by saying, let me, before I even get out of bed, Lord, let me stop and see you today. Let me involve you in this. Uh, everything I do, I get, to, I get to my work, I get to my office. The first thing I do when I sit down at my desk, what's the first thing you should do? I don't know, but maybe the first thing you should do is get into a discipline of going, this is God's desk. This is God's embassy. Today, I'm walking in heaven where I walk. Lord, please help this place to be something different from everybody else. I don't know. Find a discipline. Find whatever. Your marriage is very different than my marriage. It's very different than your marriage. It's very different than your marriage. We all did this differently. And that's okay. But every time that we try to do it well, every time we actively say, let me stop and think about how to do this in a way that, that really, and not just marriages, but any of your friendships, any of your, of your relationships where you go, I consciously want to do this well for God's sake. And you're starting to understand how this works. The next year, a guy named Yaakov Amon left the Mennonite church. Um, he was born in Switzerland. He's illiterate. As far as we know, what? Okay. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, well, I'll stop, no, stop, stop, stop. That's his beard. That's his collar. It's kind of a 17th century thing. Star Trek. <laughs> 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 Alright. Can't even get I give you people pictures and you just <laughs> Okay. So he converts to Anabaptism and specifically becomes a Swiss Mennonite. Now if you remember, Mennonites are the people who are following the teachings of former Catholic priest Menno Simons. So right about the same time. Erasmus and Luther and Calvin and Simons, all these Catholic priests are going, I think we're doing this wrong. And they take it different ways about how to improve what they see as going wrong within their Catholic church. In particular, the Swiss Mennonites that Amon was part of tended to follow something called the Schleitheim Confession, which we talked about before a little bit, written back in 1527 by a guy named Michael Sattler. Anybody remember Michael Sattler in this picture? This this is the guy that was tortured rather nastily and killed by uh, the Swiss Archduke Fernando that same year. Hi, we're going to write this beautiful confession, and then I'm going to die rather nastily. Had a really awesome response to all their attacks with him in a trial. That's a whole other Sunday school lesson. Go online and find that one. Anyway, the Schleitenheim Confession had seven basic points. And, and, and since it's been a little while, it's just not bad to go over these real quick. First off, the Anabaptist said, baptism is for those who have repented. You, we're told in scripture, repent and be baptized. You actually have to mean this. For the past few centuries, baptism has primarily been administered to infants. Because in Catholicism, the priest decides who gets to be Christian. That's, that's the whole point, is that he has the authority to say, you are saved. If the priest hasn't said you are saved, you're not saved. So it all comes down to the authority of the priest. So who cares if you're an infant or an 80-year-old man if the priest says you're good, you're good. In Calvinism, the idea is that since it has nothing to do with your choices whatsoever, it all has to do with what God is doing in your life, then who cares what you decided or if you haven't decided it yet? God isn't time-bound by your decisions. So if, if he wants you to be baptized as an infant before you're saved, after you're saved, after you've apparently made a decision, God knew at the beginning of time that you were going to be saved or not saved, so who cares about the time of it? So you can baptize an infant, get it, out, get it done and out of the way. To the Anabaptists, they said, well, only people who have personally repented can actually baptize. That's, that's the way it works. You're, it's supposed to be an indication in Scripture of the fact that you have repented of who you were, you've died and risen again with Christ, and the person you, you used to be should stay on the bottom of the pool. That's what they're thinking. So to them, it has nothing to do with age. Don't think of it as infant baptism versus adult baptism. It has everything to do with cognizance. Are you aware of which... If you are an eight-year-old infant and you have repented of your sins and you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, 
I'm happy to baptize you. That's nothing to do with age. Anyway. So, those Christians who sin and refuse to repent should be banned. They should be excommunicated. If you have been baptized, if you have repented, and then you you will not continue to repent. You, you are happy to continue sinning. Jean Calvin said, we should excommunicate people to preserve the purity of our Christian doctrine. Which, which makes sense. You don't want people who are bringing false doctrine into the church. Menno Simons said, no, excommunication is primarily to preserve our moral purity. We don't want a little bit of leaven to leaven a whole lot. I can see both sides of that. But those are the two different takes that they say. But either way, they're like, we really shouldn't be allowing people to be taking communion and to be active parts of the, of the body of Christ if they are gleefully sinning. Right? Is there a biblical precedent for that? Yeah, Mike. Really? Corinth was very proud of the fact that they were showing grace to somebody who was sleeping with his own stepmom. I like how the only people who make noises are my two girls. Yeah, but Corinth is like, well, I mean, we're not saying that that's okay. What we're saying is, is that we're showing a lot of grace. We allow them in our, in, our, in our group, and we put our arms around them and say, hey, Jesus still loves you. And Paul says, Jesus does love him, but he doesn't love what he's doing. And right now what you're doing is teaching everybody that that's apparently okay to do. You need to tell this person that this is wrong. And if he doesn't listen to you, you need to excommunicate him. You need to say, get your heart right before you can come back and be part of this. Ain't none of us perfect, but if you are willfully, gleefully sinning, I don't think you understand what it means to be a Christian in the first place. So it's the, it's the other side of that. That's the reason for us. What? Not for the church's purity, in a way, but for... Oh, good point. Purity. Oh, excellent point. Uh, what Jenny's saying is, Calvin says we need to protect the church's doctrine. Menno Simon says we need to protect the church's purity. Technically, that section from 1 Corinthians is saying, no, we need to get this guy right. Now, technically also, Paul is saying, what are you teaching the other people? I mean, what, what, So it is about purity there, too. But Paul's main focus, because then you get this in 2 Corinthians, where he's like, well, bring him back. I mean, the whole point of this is to bring it back to the full. Once he's repented, bring him back. So yeah, it, the, the focus that Paul has there is actually on the person you're excommunicating. If I do this, will you get this? Um, most churches nowadays are kind of scared of the idea of doing any kind of church discipline. Um, and, and we've done this very, very, very sparingly. I mean, Cliff's sat on the elder board, he knows how this works. But one of the few times that we've actually had to say, I'm sorry, if you will not stop doing X, we can't have you continue in this ministry. We're not kicking you out of the church, but we're saying you can't keep doing this. What was interesting was that the person eventually understood, but struggled at first, but somebody else who was involved, who wasn't even a Christian, somebody else who was involved said, well, that makes total sense. And he was actually trying to help the other person understand it. He's like, no, no, what they're trying to do is help us make the right choices here. Thank you. He actually, it actually helped bring him to Christ for us to do church discipline. So... I'm actually a big fan of being very clear about this and being very loving and gracious about how we do it. So, when you're talking about excommunication, it's not a matter of going, we hate you, go on. It's more of a matter of, you need to work on this. Third, only those who have been baptized and who aren't currently under that ban, under that excommunication, can take communion. If you don't know Jesus, if you aren't a Christian, and to them, you need to be baptized in order to complete that. But if you don't know Christ, if you're not a Christian, you probably shouldn't be taking communion. Isn't that technically part of, it's not exactly what Paul was getting at with this, don't take it unworthily, but it's at least part of it. It's going, it's supposed to be to remember Christ's work on the cross for you. If you don't acknowledge that, this is probably going to, to use Paul's phrase, um, you'd eat and drink judgment on yourself. Now, again, you'll hear me say this, I try to express this in a positive way when we do communion. Is I, I don't say, if you don't know Jesus, shut up and leave. You know, no. But I will usually say, if you're part of the body of Christ, if you are part of the family of God, this is a family meal. Come join us. Remember what Christ has done. If you have not accepted Christ, if you're not a Christian, you're not part of the family, just maybe stop and take this time to, to think a little bit about that. This is for remembering what Christ did for you. Don't, don't do this if you don't know what Christ did for you. 
Number four, Christians should separate themselves from evil. Flee from even the appearance of sin. Don't be involved in that. Don't let yourself be tainted by that. We all go, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's good. We like that. To the Anabaptists are like, that means from evil people, from uh, churches that do evil things, from interacting with civil governments that do evil things. Some of us like that, some of us don't. But they're like, well, you can't get involved in the government. The government's going to tell you to do things that you shouldn't do. So we're kind of doing our own thing. Can you ever remove yourself from this sinful world as a group? We'd be all guilty ourselves. We're still sinning. Yeah! Well, and we're called to be ambassadors. And if you can't be interacting with the people you're supposed to be an ambassador to, well, they thought of that as, sure, we're a city on a hill. And if anybody wants to come up to our hill, they can come up to our hill. But we ain't going down to their valley. But they would have to be not evil before they could come up to their hill, right? Well, yeah, but if they get baptized and they stop sinning so that we don't have to... What part are you not getting, Christy? We're very clear here. <laughs> oh, okay. You and your Corinthians. Go ahead. Um, it, you know, Paul specifically addresses that when he says, you know, when I said don't interact with evil, <coughs> I wasn't at all talking about the people of this world. Yeah. But of Christians, people who call themselves brothers. Yep. Otherwise, you'd have to take yourself out of the world. To which the Anabaptists went, yeah. Yeah, we can make ourselves little copians outside the world. Paul's absolutely right. At which point, <laughs> Paul is banging his head against the wall going, not what I was saying. So. There was a Lutheran church that used to have ads on on the radio saying, uh, bring your your children to us and we'll baptize them. That's what it was said. Make sure they get to heaven. Well, that's... And I haven't heard that for a while. Good. It's on regularly. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but again, it's, it's just like the, the idea that if I come along and throw water on you, now Jesus has to let you into heaven, which not every Lutheran would believe, but that's what the implication of an ad like that would be. Five, churches should be led by pastors who are themselves under the discipline of the church. The pastor gives direction. He's the shepherd of the sheep. But if the pastor loses his way, if the pastor falls into sin, the church should rebuke and correct him. Neither one controls the other. It's a little bit of a check and balancing kind of thing. So you sit there and you go, to the Catholic church, it's a matter of... Um, the priest is overall, and you don't get to question. And the Pope is over him, and he doesn't get to question. To say the Quakers, um, it, 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 it was, it was, no, no, no. The congregation is everything. We control everything. The Anabaptist said, no, no, no. Pick a pastor prayerfully, carefully. Pick somebody you trust. Let him lead. But that's not a blank check. If he screws up, you get to say something about that. You get to call him on that. Personally, I kind of like that idea. Um, that I'm, I'm not given a blank check. You guys should be Bereans. Now we're back to Paul. You should be Bereans. Double check everything I'm saying. If I'm wrong, tell me about it. Number six, violence is never an acceptable option. It's never an acceptable reaction to things. A Christian's fight is not against flesh and blood. Therefore, if somebody's attacking you, it's not you don't get to attack them back. Therefore, they would say, it's wrong for a Christian to be in the army. It's wrong to serve as a police officer. It's wrong to strike someone else in anger or even in self-defense. You don't get to do that because you should turn the other cheek because it's not your right to decide who lives and who dies. Violence is always wrong. Now, again, so is it wrong to kill witches? Absolutely. No Anabaptist ever did that. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, Brethren Church here. Mm -hmm. Now, again, there are a couple things here that you, hopefully, there's several things here you go, that makes total sense. There are a couple things here that hopefully we, we go, um, tweak that. You know, but I'm not saying you have to agree with everything. But that was one of their main things, is we're going to be pacifists. You never take another human life. To, like, the Amish today, it's like, even if you were to go up threaten their family, things they will not respond in violence. Uh, when a couple of years ago there was a guy that, that uh, shot up a school filled with Amish children. Yeah, the Amish didn't fight. They, they weren't going to fight back. And, and w when, that guy, uh, when that guy's funeral came up, the Amish turned out in droves to support his family. Because to them, they're like, your poor child, your poor son, I don't know where he went when he died. This is hard. This must be hard on you. 
we, we miss our children, but we know exactly where they went. Why should we kill somebody and send him to hell to prevent him from sending my family to heaven? Now, you may not agree with that, but you have to respect that mindset of saying, torture me, kill me. I'm not fighting. I'm not responding to God. Remember, even back to Georgias, way back in the day, you had this guy who was a soldier, a consummate soldier in Rome. His huge, huge ministry was that when they were killing him, he still would not fight back and he would not denounce Christ. And so tons of guys in the Imperial Guard became Christians because of his witness. Again, I'm not asking you to be a pacifist. But this kind of pacifism that says, oh, I'm not scared to fight. I'm not thinking all men are nice, decent human beings who are reminded to say that they're naughty. I'm saying, you're a horrible human being. And you're doing something that's horribly wrong. But I won't do something wrong to stop you. Even to the end of my own life. You know. Have to respect the guts of this kind of pacifism. Seven. Christians should not take oaths. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Simply tell the truth. Didn't Jesus talk about that? Now again, they put a caveat. They said, no, we're not talking about testimony in a court case. Because there are some Christians that do that. Like, to, the, to the Anabaptists, they're like, let me clarify. That's you essentially signing an affidavit, saying what I'm saying is true. On paper, documented, he, he said an oath before God that what he's saying is true. This isn't a matter of you talking to your brother, going, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. Let me just, let me just throw that out there as, as if my promise were not enough. So like, you, you can do the oath in a testimony, but not, don't take oaths, I promise I'm going to do this on an oath to Jesus, whatever. Anyway, Amon said, that's just not austere enough. We need, to, we need to look clearer. First off, if someone sins, they're no longer part of the church family. Once you sin, you've ceased being a Christian. Therefore, it's not enough simply to refuse them communion. And we're not even talking about unrepentant sin. If you sin, you have to repent of it. I'm not talking about Dawn is doing something she knows is wrong, and we've tried to talk to her about it, and she will not listen. No, she screwed something up once. You need to excommunicate them. But it, it, you have to do more than that. If they're not part of the church family, you don't treat them as part of the church family. You don't talk to them. You don't eat with them. You don't let them in your house. You shun them completely. Well, that'll draw them back to repentance, won't it? Absolutely. See how well that works? Isn't this the same basic attitude of the Inquisition? Make this horrible enough that they will repent and you'll save their souls. That totally works. Yes, your church attendance is very well. And by sinning, I mean liars. I mean guys who shave. I mean guys who dress extravagantly. All these different ways that you. All these guys, all these guys who try to draw attention to themselves. That's sin, and you should shun them because they will burn in hell. No. In fact, later on, once you get into the 19th century, the Amish are like, you know, mustaches are an extravagance. I mean, the Bible talks about growing your beard out. You have to grow your beard. Anybody who's not growing a beard, you're going against the scripture. Scripture never says anything about mustache. Your mustache is you being extravagant. So you should shave the mustache. You just go, you know, what? Anyway. What about shaving your head? Yeah. Uh, actually, you should keep your hair short, because only, only weirdos let their hair grow long. Because then you look like a woman. So you should keep your hair short but grow your beard long. That's the Amish way. In fact, the Amish, even today, a lot of sects uh, use hook and eye closures instead of buttons because buttons are so darned ostentatious. You can see the buttons, can't you? Therefore, buttons are all about fanciness. Now, I will say that back in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, buttons oftentimes were a lot more extravagant than what we have today. We tend to make them the same color as the shirt so that they drop out. Not the way they were back then. Anyway, so he says, you have to be utterly, completely separate. This is why you don't want it to be dependent on the civil government for anything, not for gasoline, not for electricity, not for anything, which is why, not because they don't like technology, but because they do not want to be connected to the outside world. You'll see them not driving cars, not having electricity in their homes. But if you go to like an Amish workshop, a lot of times they'll have a generator that they will have to do electricity so that they can work their drill presses. Can do in their work is okay, but they can't have it in the house. They can't have it in the house, and and they'll have a generator. It won't be connected to the power grid outside of their community. They're doing their thing. So I mean, it's it's all a matter of 
don't be connected to the outside world in any way. Take this absolutely seriously. Of course, you could argue. They can't. Work then to they can't. The barn. can use, uh, diesel engines because they don't use exactly. Uh, or what's interesting is when I talk about technology, um, increasingly a lot of Amish will have burner phones, cell phones, um, where you don't have a plan. I, I don't have a landline because I have to be connected to the phone company. But this burner phone, it's just mine. It's not connected to any plan. I'm not beholden to anybody. So you sit there and you go, wait, so to be a Luddite Amish, you have a burner phone. Yeah. Okay. But it does make sense for what they're trying to do. Another well, anyway. There's a big thing about them. Because they don't pay taxes, a lot of this, because of that they're becoming so wealthy, their businesses and stuff like that. Well, and it's insular. You're not buying a lot of luxury goods, and, but you do things so nicely and so well that people pay through the nose for them. Yeah, Amish community is getting fairly wealthy. So they, they, they separate, you have to separate yourself even from other good-hearted Christians. And that's a, a catchphrase that talks about sympathizers who have helped the Anabaptists, protected them from the Lutheran Calvinist Catholic purges. These nice people who have helped them. Amon says, oh, they're very nice, but they're going to burn in hell because they're not us. If they haven't done repentant baptism, if they're not Anabaptists, if the only baptism they've ever had is as an infant, then they're not two true Christians, and we have to shun them. We can say thank you for making us not dead, but then we can't even talk to you. So we kind of maybe have to shout thank you from a distance and then not talk to you. So he led his church to split from the rest of the liberals, including a guy named Hans Reist, who was the bishop who originally ordained him. So Amon excommunicated Reist and all of his followers because they said, you're dangerous liberals. And Reist excommunicated Amon, saying, well, you're not! You're a heretic fanatic! You have no concept of what grace is. And what's interesting is Amon later excommunicated himself <laughs> because he said, I was way too quick to, to, to excommunicate Reist. I should have given him a chance to talk about it. I was wrong. I'm a horrible person, so I have to separate myself from my, from my congregation and then get rehabilitated back in. You just go. But that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Amish. When, when we talk about Amish, uh, a lot of times people equate Amish with Quakers, with Mennonites, different things. The Amish are related to the Mennonites, have no relation whatsoever with Quakers. But, but, pardon me? Um, ultimately, yes, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but to the Hutterites as well. Um, so, uh, Europe froze in the Great Frost of 1709. Climatology is still going. I don't know what that was about. Worst, worst winter in 500 years. Yeah. Worst winter in 500 years. Thousands of immigrants leave uh, Central Europe to try to find some place to live. A lot of them tried to go to England, especially the Amish. These German-speaking Amish tried to go to England, and England closed its borders to immigrants. Tell me that's not time to discuss right now. But England said, nope, too many immigrants, too many problems. Nope, 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 nope. Go somewhere else. If you're refugees, we don't want you. Tell you what, though, we'll send you to Ireland. We've depopulated half of Ireland. Knock yourself out. Go there. We'll send you to the Americas. Yeah, but you don't get to go to England. So a lot of the Amish went to America, and most of them settled in Pennsylvania. What with them already being open to the Quakers, like they're already open to strange religious sects that nobody else likes. So we're going to go to Pennsylvania. Since the Amish spoke German, Deutsch, the British settlers put them in the same category as the settlers of New Amsterdam nearby and referred to them as the, anybody know? Pennsylvania Dutch. Pennsylvania Dutch. And that's how that happened. So, here's my question. Let's end with this. What can we learn from all of this, all the things we've talked about today? Do you see any commonalities? What can we get out of this that we can apply in our lives or our church today? Do you see any commonalities between any of these things or any differences? Yeah. You see, in those two things, this idea of you guys do it just enough differently for me that I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. You Jesuits are a lot like our Dominicans, except enough different that I hate you. You Mennonites are enough different from us Amish that we hate you, we hate you. How's that different from Brother Brother Lawrence? What were you going to say? And Brother Lawrence just sits there and goes, Simple faith is just, yeah. The basic, uh, 
Joseph. Yeah. Scripture. Now, I, I respect that all these people are trying to have good theology, good doctrine. And maybe Brother Lawrence didn't really do that. If all of us were Brother Lawrence, within a generation, our church would spin wildly out of control. If all we ever did was go, just love God. Haven't we seen that? In churches in the last even 30 years, they've just got, oh, just love God. Let's hug everybody. You know, yeah, very quickly you just get weird. So doctrine, theology, very important. But the heart of it, can you have correct doctrine and just be so heart wrong that you're no longer serving God? Jumping through hoops all the time. Jumping through hoops all the time. Now we're back to Corinthians. How so? You can do everything right, but if you're doing it with the wrong heart, all you are is banging dogs, clashing symbols. It's not honoring Christ. Friend of mine is putting up. Started to get on idols, and I sent her one from a book where people who worship God as Christians, or their own thinking, as opposed to the biblical, is really an idol. Yep. Um, in fact, there was a there was a whole. We can talk about that. Is it, there, there was a whole time back when we were talking about uh, the iconoclasts, uh, when we talked about the difference between um, are you actually following God or are you following the, the icon of God that you've created in your mind? That that becomes itself a kind of idolatry. Good point. Very good. Well, and then they also make your God idolatry. And I think that's kind of what, yeah, th that doing it this way is itself what we're worshiping, not God. Well, let's pray. Let's close. Dear Lord, I thank you that you haven't changed. You've never changed in all of this. The Dominicans, the Jesuits, the Amish, the Mennonites, the Carmelites with Brother Lawrence, they're all serving you, and they're all doing it very differently, but you haven't changed. And so I pray, Lord, help us to be good Bereans. Help us to study your word. Help us to, to know your truth. But I pray, Lord, also that you help us to be good Bereans. That you help us to have your heart as, you, as we interact with, with our brothers and sisters and with the world around us. Help us, Lord, to, to desire to worship you, not just on Sunday morning in a church building, but help us to worship you every day in everything that we do, with the attitudes of our hearts, in every interaction. Be glorified by our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.